0: 8, Hebrews chapter 8. So we're going to be studying through the the whole chapter um, of Hebrews chapter 8. And um, it's a somewhat simple chapter with great application. Um, And it's the same with um, chapters 9, 10, 11, and 12. Uh, The Hebrew writer is trying to engage the mind and the intellect of his audience. We've talked about many times, I think every lesson we've tried to put the overview of the letter back into our minds that the Hebrews were Christians who it seems had been Christians for a very long time and in chapter 10 he acknowledges at the end of the chapter that there were many things that they had at once endured in their faith and there are many things in chapter 6 it mentions that they were still doing but they were doing those things while also giving evidence that they were withdrawing from their hope, withdrawing from God, withdrawing from their faithfulness. And we talked about how if you have a child that's going through a phase of development where you, there are certain natural expectations of development and you recognize that all of a sudden that development has just stopped and you begin to kind of be suspicious and think like, okay, we might we might have a problem here. And then you notice that their development actually starts to go backwards. And again, if this is like in a child's infancy or you know early on in, a, in, in childhood, that becomes something that's pretty alarming, right? And a parent is going to try to find whatever method they can or whatever answers they can to try to get to a solution so that that development can continue. And that's really the context of the Hebrew letter, is these are Christians who should have been continuing to develop, their faith should be growing, they should be able to handle the sufferings that they're enduring while still growing in their faith and drawing nearer to God. But instead of growing, they're withdrawing. And so it's like hitting that emergency button and trying to intervene and re-engage them. And how the Hebrew writer, again, he does this is by Vividly making comparisons that can very tangibly convey the nature of Christ's ministry in heaven so that they can continue to connect to this ministry that Jesus is fulfilling actively in the heavenly places. Um, So the overall theme I think is chapter 12, verse 1. He's trying to get the audience, really us by reading this as well, to fixate our eyes on Jesus. And the idea of fixating our eyes on Jesus is we're looking to Jesus in every circumstance. And trying to connect everything we endure, everything we do, we're trying to bring it all to Jesus so that we can connect ourselves to Jesus through everything. And that Jesus is both the author, the person who founded our faith and makes our faith possible, but he is also the one who finishes it and perfects it. So, chapter 8, Jesus has just been in chapter 7 compared to Melchizedek and the Levitical priesthood of the law. To try to more tangibly demonstrate the nature of this work that Jesus is doing and how superior this work is to bring people to God and perfect them in a way that was never possible within the law. And that the work of perfection, the work of bringing people close to God, the power for that was ultimately never within the law. And it was clearly evidenced in Melchizedek and Abraham's meeting, just even in that small three-verse meeting back in Genesis chapter 14, The Hebrew writer makes the point that it was evident even in that, that the power for perfection, for atonement, for forgiveness, everything a priesthood was designed to do was never complete, was never intended to be complete within the law itself, but always with what was outside of the law. And there'll be points in this chapter that I think will help us to put our hands on that a little bit more. So chapter 8, I'm going to start with verses 1 through 6. The idea is this covenant is demonstrated as being superior, better, First of all, because of the gifts that are given within it. And the gifts we'll see the next uh, times we look at Hebrews, really they're explained in chapter 9, chapter 10. Um, But here at least he emphasizes the fact that those gifts are superior. So chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who will offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. So there was a question that I asked, uh, I think it was in chapter two. Um, The question at the end of the lesson we did on chapter two was, you kind of think about Jesus's activity or even God's activity. Really the question was, is God more active now in our lives and in the lives of God's people, or was God more active in the Old Testament? And I think it can be easy to think that God was actually more active in the Old Testament because we see him more directly intervening, right? We see God doing things very directly. We see him speaking to people very directly. And so it can be easy to think that that's the time when God was most directly involved. And maybe now because we don't have God speaking to us, like in our minds or to like prophets the way that prophets spoke in the Old Testament. And because God is not doing like direct activity, maybe God's taken a more passive role today. And I think the idea that chapter 8, 9, and 10 is really going to try to put into our minds is that everything about the law really served as a testimony of greater things to help us to understand what we've received right now. How Jesus is acting as a minister in the heavenly places right now so that we can connect with what Jesus is doing as our high priest presently and understand that work and connect to that work right now. The idea is Jesus is actually infinitely busier, infinitely more active now in the heavenly places and heaven itself rather than when he was on earth fulfilling his earthly ministry. So two things just quickly on one through six first thing is sin separates us from the reality that God is in, right? So really there's a process of bringing us back to reality. And when we sin, we're choosing to set our value and set our focus on things that really are not within the realm of the reality that God is trying to bring us into. And so all religion generally has some way of acknowledging that there's some kind of like greater reality that we're trying to connect to. And the idea is that Jesus ultimately bridges the gap between the reality that our sin has brought us into and the reality that God is trying to bring us into. Kind of like John chapter 14, when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. The idea is Jesus is acting as a bridge to bring us back to reality. And verses 1 through 6, one of the things that's portrayed about that reality, this is really the second thing is that everything in the law was not meant to be that reality. But everything in the law was meant to be a testimony, or like a shadow, as it's called, of these greater realities that exist now, that we can understand now and interact with now. So in verse 4 and 5, he mentions that everything that they had on earth in the old law Really served as a copy of things in heaven. And verse 5, you can actually see that Moses was actually told about that very directly in Exodus chapter 25, verse 9, when he was told to make everything after the pattern that was shown him on the mountain, right? Maybe a way to think about this a little more, again, a little more tangibly, um, is thinking about children using toys that are imitations of things adults use. So, like, you know, I just spent some time um, living with Mike and Suzanne. And Cory, well, Corey and Ella, I guess, have, like, a toy tool set. And they have, like, a toy little kitchen thing, right, where they have, like, plates and play foods. You know, and kids oftentimes will play with, play with, like, Tonka trucks and play race cars. Kids will have, like, toy cell phones that make noises and all that, and they might even, like, talk to you and pretend like you're having a conversation. But we acknowledge that those things are just, that's all they are, they're just toys, And the reason why kids have such interest in those things is because they see how important it is and how those things are used by adults. So like the reason why a child is interested in a toy cell phone is because they see adults using cell phones all the time. The reason why a toy car is interesting is because they, the way they see cars being used by adults. The reason why a toy tool set is interesting is because of the real tools that are used for greater purposes. Now, I'm not going to trade my iPhone for like a children's toy phone, right? I'm not going to trade my car for a child's play car because once I grow up and I have the capacity to interact with the real substance of that, I'm no longer interested in the play thing, right? And that's really like the law. Again, the law was meant to serve as a testimony to point people to these realities. And the Hebrew writer is going to get into the fact that the law itself on its own was never the means by which people were actually drawing close to God. And it was never the means by which people were getting forgiveness of their sins on its own merit. Not that people in the Old Testament couldn't receive forgiveness. It's just that that forgiveness was never based on the sacrifices themselves within the law. Hebrews chapter 10 is going to make the point that the blood of bulls and goats could actually never take away sins, right? So the law was meant to testify to greater things, but also we'll see in verses 7 through 13 The law was also by its insufficiency to meet our greatest needs in relation to God. The law also testified to the depth of our need for greater things, since the law on its own could not meet those needs. Again, it's kind of like if you need a real tool, right? Like if your house is, you know, falling apart in some way, or like you've got a water valve that's broken and leaking water, you know, the the toy tool is not sufficient to solve the problem you know, or if your floor is collapsing, whatever. Your toy tools cannot actually fix the problem. But I mean, if you understand what it's actually related to, it's like, okay, well, I need like a real hammer, you know, or like a real saw, right? So I hope that, that makes sense. So the idea is the Old Testament is actually more uh, more useful for us now because even though it was useful for them to connect them to God through its practices, There's a sense now where the Old Testament equips us to connect with God and to draw closer to him and to draw closer to Jesus and understand him in a way that is most consistent with the nature of his ministry, right? So when we read the Old Testament, a part of what this this author is doing is trusting the knowledge of his audience in Old Testament things to try to help them to understand how equipped they are to understand the greater value of what they now have so that they understand the necessity of continuing to connect with God through the things that have been testified beforehand that equip them for that purpose. Um, So, verse 5 again. The law receiving its substance, then, from these greater things actually does not undermine um, its importance, and it also did not undermine the seriousness involved in people keeping it, right? Kind of like uh, marriage. Marriage is patterned, now we know, after something greater than itself. In Hebrews chapter 5, marriage is patterned after Christ and the church. Now, think about this. Because marriage is patterned after Christ and the church, which is like a greater thing, does that mean that marriage is now less important because marriage is not that greater thing but only a testimony? No, marriage is actually more important now because marriage so closely connects to that example, right? And... It's always been there there's always been a st- there's always been a condition similarly connected with all of God's people in all time where our faith has always been based in promises that connect us with what is to come. So just as people in the Old Testament needed to see that there were greater things that the law was pointing them to, we at the same t- time now, there's so many things we practice and do now even as a congregation that we do it in the hope that these things have their fulfillment ultimately with our fellowship with God in heaven itself. So we're not just acting for the present. We're not just practicing what we do as a church for the present. We're not just worshiping God as we do for the present. Everything is still based in hope of promises in verse 6 that are just now greater and more complete than anything that they had in the Old Testament. So one quick application before we look at 7 through 13. Jesus being a high priest in heaven in verses 1 and 2 is something that was clearly always within God's mind. It was always God's intention. And God's purpose has now been completely fulfilled in Jesus taking his seat on the throne of God in heaven itself to serve in that tabernacle. There's, I don't know if some of you may have not heard this term, but there's like a teaching called premillennialism. And it's its a teaching that... Uh, the belief is that Jesus is someday going to come back to earth, reign as an earthly king, and what's going to happen is like the Old Testament system in in some ways is like going to be restored and people are finally going to follow that system the way it should have always been followed in the first place. And what that is, it's a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of Jesus' ministry in heaven, God's eternal will to seat him on the throne of heaven, and to connect us to that will, to that ministry in the heavenly places. So just kind of as, a, as an application doctrinally, um, just what God is conveying here, just in this chapter, in the previous chapter, make teachings like that impossible. Um, and it demonstrates just the fundamental misunderstanding involved in some of those things. Jesus is in heaven, serving in a way that was always being, being pointed to by everything that came before his ministry, Everything that came before Jesus is meant to connect us to see the necessity of his ministry as it exists now, and the expectation of joining him in heaven one day as our hope, and not him coming back for 1,000 years to reinstitute what was, of itself, we'll see in 7 through 13, insufficient. So with that, 7 through 13, here what the writer uh, tries to make clear is that there are distinctions in the nature of the covenants. So we're gonna look at the differences of the covenants in seven through 13. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand, to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach every one his fellow citizen and every one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them for I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. So something very basic that I think might be helpful to go over here is really just asking the question, like, what is a covenant? Uh, Basically, just by its most literal definition a covenant is a contract, meaning like an agreement between two parties, usually something where you sign your name at the bottom. It might be a promise where one person is committing to something no matter what the other person does, basically devoting yourself unconditionally to a purpose that you are committing yourself to fulfill no matter the other person's response. could be an obligation. So it could be something where two people are obligating themselves to something together. It could be something where, again, just like that promise, A person is expressing an obligation to another person. Um, And so covenants are common um, in scripture. They're common in uh, fulfilling um, needs that we have, oftentimes in terms of economic uh, exchanges, political exchanges. Um, Covenants usually are involved when you're committing yourself to like a lease or house agreements or loan. Um, So why is this important? Like why does God operate by covenants? Covenants give confidence, clarity, and assurance. So for instance, with my apartment that I'm renting out, I had to sign a series of paperwork agreeing to meet terms of this covenant or contract that I was agreeing to by leasing. And what this does is it gives confidence to the receiving party, which is the apartment complex and the management. They understand that I understand that I'm expected to pay a very certain amount of money at a very certain amount of time every month. And they understand that there's a very clear agreement there. And this covenant also involves terms. So they understand that since I didn't sign to have pets and pay that extra money, I'm not just going to bring pets into my apartment. They agree that I'm going to, I agree to them, that I'm going to call them when there's any kind of mechanical problems uh, within my apartment or anything like that, just clarity, confidence, and assurance. And with God, he wants there to be confidence, clarity, and assurance in our relationship with him. And God's covenant, just like the theme in this morning, is God's way of identifying himself to us and identifying us with him so that we understand who God is by covenant, by understanding what he's committing himself to by covenant, and what then we need to understand to do in response to his faithfulness in acting on his covenantal agreement. And we see this commonly through scripture. Uh, Genesis chapter 8, where uh, God flooded the earth and restored it through Noah. In Genesis chapter 8, God makes a covenant with the world. And it's a covenant that's not based on any return agreement. He just says to himself that he's never going to destroy the world ever again by waters of a flood and that the rainbow will be set in the clouds as a permanent assurance to mankind that that will never be anything God will do ever again, right? There's a covenant in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God with Abraham. That was another unconditional covenant. God tells Abraham that those who bless him, he will bless. Those who curse him, he will curse. He's going to make him a great name, and through him, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Exodus chapter 19, after God had renewed that covenant with Abraham's descendants, eventually God makes a more specific covenant with the nation of Israel. And this covenant was a covenant inaugurated by blood agreements. And this was something that required mutual obligation, right? So not only was God entering into an obligation with Israel, he was also committing to them obligations in return. And Hebrews chapter 9, will get more into that with the blood of the covenant that was agreed upon by both parties, right? So, and then there's also 2 Samuel chapter 7. One of the most major covenants in scripture that's quoted in Acts chapter 2 is that one from David's descendants, God would raise him up to sit on his throne, right and that again it's another covenant that god is making with david that god fulfilled and he gave the obligation on their part to be faithful to him in response to that covenant now related to responding to the covenant look at verse 7 where was the fault of the covenant most clearly observed right it says at the end of the verse i'm sorry in in verse 8 uh, after the first sentence in verse uh, 7 finding fault with them. I would think that after talking so much about the nature of the covenant and that, you know, in chapter seven, the priesthood within the covenant demonstrated the law in verse 19 actually could not make anything perfect. I would expect to say that God found fault with the covenant itself, but in verse eight, he mentions that fault was found with the people as a reflection of the fault of the covenant. Just last time, um, I gave kind of a qualifier for this. I think it is important to note that the Old Covenant, for what it was, was perfect, right? Like the law's purpose was not to make people necessarily perfect before God. There were things that the law inherently could not do. But for what the law could do, and for what it was supposed to be, it was perfect. But the problem is we have needs in our relationship with God that a law cannot fulfill, which demonstrates that the problem with the law is that it puts too much task on the people. It's as if in the law, the sacrificial system, the priesthood within the law, things that Christ himself alone would accomplish and embody, those things were being entrusted to the nation itself to embody and accomplish, which they literally could not do and never did, right? So in verse uh, 9, notice it says that God took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt and they did not continue in his covenant. Therefore, he did not care for them, right? So kind of on that idea of finding fault with them. Just to think about where that quote comes from. It's a quote from Jeremiah chapter 31. This is actually the longest Old Testament quote in the entire New Testament, which is kind of interesting. And you think about the, the circumstances Jeremiah was in when these prophecies were stated, and even just chapter 31 itself, beyond just the prophet in general, When this prophecy was spoken, Jerusalem was surrounded by the armies of Babylon. Everything that was involved in the covenant in the Old Testament on the people's part was about to be destroyed. The city was about to be destroyed. The kings were about to just be gone and never return again. The priests were about to be scattered in the nations that they couldn't perform their service. The sacrifices then obviously are not going to be possible to make. The building of the temple, the most holy place, the holy place, all of that was about to be destroyed. So if there was ever a time where the fault of the covenant was evident, that was the time. And it seems like in verse 13, the point is that when God said that he's looking for a new covenant, it's very apparent that the old system of things is on its way out and that the rest of the history of Israel is going to be based on God seeking that second covenant out, right? Which is obviously what's fulfilled in Jesus. But again, getting to the fault of the people, you see this pattern of disobedience in the Old Testament. You see it when Moses even went up in the first place to receive the law from God. They made a golden calf and had forsaken the fundamental agreements that they had made with God before that. You remember Nehemiah chapter 9, our Bible study, that when they came back from Babylon and were entering back into Jerusalem and the walls were rebuilt, They were hearing the law and what in chapter 9 they had understood from the law is that they had a history of habitual disobedience. That although God had always been faithful and that his faithfulness had always been exalted in contrast to their disobedience, they they were always working against the faithfulness of God. And what that shows about the Old Covenant, getting back to the beginning of the chapter, my laptop and my phone If I unplug my laptop from a power source or an outlet, what's naturally going to happen? The battery's going to wear out. And it's really not going to last very long. Um, I think my laptop might last like five to ten hours. My phone, probably something pretty similar. Um, They're not designed to work of themselves to perpetually continue in their work, right? And with the Old Testament, when you see this constant disobedience and God having to do very direct things to, in a sense, like, re-energize the relationships that he had with his people, those were always God acting outside of the basic terms of covenant. It was God acting on his own outside of the covenant, in a sense. And there were people of faith who, like Nehemiah, were able to work with God in those times of, in a sense, like spiritual renaissance, people like David, people like Abraham. But the thing is, those people and where they were getting their faith and the source of their faith was not based on the law of its own merit, but based on the principles of faith that are perfected in the New Testament, right? So that's the thing is, if I unplug my laptop and it begins getting drained of its energy, it becomes really clear it is not connected to the power source. Israel as a nation, with the system of the laws that was working for Israel to be constantly withdrawing from God, and for God to have to constantly intervene directly, doing major things like destroying the nation in Jeremiah's time, what that does is it demonstrates that ultimately, even with the law, the nation is ultimately not connected to the power source. And one of the exhortations that the Hebrew writer is going to make is when we as God's people now are withdrawing from God when they're suffering or whatever else there might be. What that does is it makes it look like the new covenant doesn't have any power at all. It's as if all the things that God has done have actually done nothing superior. That Jesus and all the things that Jesus is doing right now, it's as if it's all insufficient. It's just the same weaknesses that it had before, right? And so what he's going to do is exhort them. They need to respond in a way that shows the power of what they've received. And that's going to be the final exhortation before he gets into more applications in chapter 10 that Jesus by his body and his blood have brought us into the most holy place to serve with God so that we could be faithful to the end and demonstrate the power of the perpetual faithfulness and working of Jesus' priesthood. So everything God was doing in the Old Testament was to help us now to understand the working of his ministry as we have received it today. One, one more thing in verse 9 with that, at the end of the verse. He says that they did not continue in my covenant and I did not care for them, says the Lord. This is just something I commend to you because um, this is legitimately something I'm not sure if I'm correct on this. I mean, it, make, it makes sense, but I just commend this to you. It seems like the things that are said about the Old Testament in relation to the New is that God ultimately was always working with us in mind that even things that God was doing with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of those things God very specifically was working with events and orchestrating events by providence to teach new covenant people about his work and glory in New Testament ways. The idea is that everything God was doing was not for the ultimate goal of the people he was immediately working with, but the ultimate goal of those who he would eventually work with, those related to Jesus. Um, look at uh, chapter 6, verse 16, I'm sorry, 17 and 18. I think this is a verse that points to this purpose. And this this idea in this verse, these verses, is really speaking to the point that what God did with Abraham and the pro- promises he made to Abraham ultimately were to demonstrate something for us right now. And, and again, this is just on that similar, similar principle and application. So chapter 6, 17 and 18. In the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of, of the promise, and that would be us, the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have, or taken refuge, um, would have strong encourage- encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. So again, the idea is what God did with Abraham ultimately was not with the ambition of Abraham as the end goal. Isaac as the end goal, Jacob as the end goal, Israel of the flesh as the end goal. The end goal was always new covenant people, right? And that I think in chapter seven is a part of the glory of the point he makes from Melchizedek. It was always about new covenant people. It was always about the ministry that Jesus would fulfill in the new covenant. It's always been about helping us to see and to understand that. So the last applications is just looking at the nature of the new covenant and why that's important. First thing is verse 12. God's covenant would be based in perfect forgiveness. And the difference between the old and new covenant is what we're able to learn and what we're able to become because of the forgiveness we receive in Jesus Christ. That's going to be the central point of chapters 9 and 10. The gifts that Jesus gives in his priesthood, his blood, and his body are gifts that are overwhelmingly perfect and fully sufficient to bring us near to God, to cleanse our consciences from dead works, to serve the living God. It's like the passage in Hebrews 10 that I read this morning at the table. Those gifts are gifts of perfection. They are fully adequate to serve God's purpose and meet our greatest needs. So that's one thing, is the new covenant will be based in perfect forgiveness. Verse 11, that addresses one of the most fundamental weaknesses and insufficiencies of the Old Testament. Why didn't people know the Lord in the Old Covenant? Kind of unusual, right? Because they're God's people. But he says something different about the new covenant is people would actually know God and they wouldn't just need to be taught from scratch about God. How did you become just kind of most commonly a member of Israel, a part of the nation? It was by birth. And when you're born, obviously, like, you have no say in the matter. I mean, you're not thinking to yourself, like, well, making the decision to be circumcised. I mean, those decisions are made for you, right? So you're inheriting things, based on promises and works that are done beforehand. But ultimately, you're not inheriting those things because of any knowledge of your own. And the idea is in the New Covenant, we responding to God's gospel and we choosing to voluntarily submit ourselves, the knowledge we have of our condition that compels that response is sufficient for us to know the Lord and to become, in verse 10, a member of his family. That in Ezekiel, we studied this uh, last year, Devin leading the study One thing Devin pointed out, um, and I think we noticed as we were just kind of progressively going through Ezekiel, is one of the most common things that God says in Ezekiel as he's pointing forward by promise is, they shall be my people, and I shall be their God. That God was going to create a new people with a new nature, a new heart, and a new spirit, and those people would finally be the people who would be called his children. So forgiveness really undergirds all of this, that there's something about the sacrifice of Jesus that puts God's will, the perfection of that will, deep into our hearts and deep into our minds. And it brings us joy then to continue to serve God no matter what our circumstances are because of how his forgiveness gives us such a perfect knowledge of him, even outside of our circumstances. So in verse um, verse. 8 the beginning of the quote there he's making this covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah I think another components of this covenant because of the forgiveness that God would bring and how perfect that forgiveness is the last application I want to make with this is the peace that this would bring between irreconcilable enemies remember in Jeremiah 31 the condition of Israel and Judah these were pieces of the same nation obviously But these pieces had been irreparably separated. Israel and Judah would never be brought back together in the Old Testament period. And these had become actually enemies of one another. You see when you read the Kings and the Chronicles, Israel and Judah were constantly fighting against each other. And when Jehoshaphat tried to ally himself with Israel, that actually created even more conflict. That actually helped. It, It didn't help at all. Um, So I think a part of the covenant is because of God's forgiveness, there would be fellowship and reconciliation in a way never before possible. And you have to think like, we're a people at this congregation, just the members of the church, I mean, we're pretty different, right? There's differences of background, culture, there's differences economically, Um, there might even be pretty dramatic differences in political preferences, There might be differences that are pretty dramatic just in terms of personality. There's all these things that can create like irreparable conflicts among God's people. But because of verse 12, and because of the way that God would show mercy, the way that he would put an end to sin and put an end to his remembrance of sin, there would be the ability to make repair and reconcile relationships that otherwise have no capacity to be reconciled. So the idea is because of what God has done for us, we are then more perfectly able to reflect those things to others. So with that, just to bring the lesson to a close, um, I think a, a principle with these applications puts into perspective some common sayings that I think don't hit on the applications that this chapter makes with the New Covenant. Simple things like sometimes people will say, in order to forgive others, you've got to learn to forgive yourself. In order to love others, you've got to learn to love yourself. I think that misses the point of what Jesus has done, right? The idea isn't that I have to learn to forgive myself. The idea is I need to understand and believe how God has forgiven me. And if I can come to terms with how far God has gone to forgive me of my iniquities, I can come to terms with his forgiveness in my life. And if I learn how God has loved me in that, and if I believe that and comprehend that, then I'm in turn equipped to reflect that same love for others as well. So that's where we'll end the lesson and bring it bring it to a close. Um, but the idea is that God has given us a covenant to where we can know him perfectly and share in perfect fellowship with him. So if you're here and you're aware that there's something that you want to bring before the church, it's something that you perceive you need to grow in so that that fellowship can be brought back into the position it should be in. If there's sin in your life, hurting that fellowship, now is the time to bring those things forward as we stand and sing an invitation song.